Our scripture today is from Philippians 1, 12 through 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is in my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Charlotte. Well, we just uh, last week started um, a series of what we're going to be doing this fall of working our way through the book of Philippians, which is actually a letter that uh, Paul has written to a church that he knows in this city called Philippi. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a letter that uh, in, in just four chapters, he mentions and uses the language about joy 16 different times. So in many ways, it's the Bible's book about joy. When you hear that, I can feel a little bit, I don't, I don't know how that lands with you, because joy can just sound so n naive or sentimental, and there's a way to kind of be religious about joy that feels icky, but this is, the joy that he is talking about in Philippians is not naive sentimentalism. It is, um, it is not toxic positivity. It is um, a deep, defiant, hope-infused disposition as you go through life. And the way that he says you get that is totally counterintuitive, totally upside down, because we think, well, the way that I get joy is through gaining. If I can get more money or more vacation or more accomplishment or more adventure, more whatever, then I'll get my hands on joy. But what Paul's going to do and what he has done throughout this whole letter is that joy does not come by gaining. Joy comes by losing. Joy comes by losing your consumerism and your control and even your very life. Totally upside down. Now, to, to kind of get into this, um, you might know the name Emma Coburn. Emma Coburn is an uh, Olympic athlete. She's on the um, uh, Team USA. She, she runs the steeplechase 
event, which is a 3,000 meter race that involves obstacles and hurdles, and you jump over this like water pit thing. And um, in terms of her sport, she's one of the most consistent athletes in her in her class. She's a nine-time um, U.S. champion. She competed at last year's. Um, Summer Olympics in Tokyo was was favored to win. She's at the height of her physical peak and goes and does that race and things do not go according to plan. For some reason, on the third lap, her her body uh, stops working. Her body shuts down. She trips over a hurdle, comes in dead last. Last. Totally devastating. And there's an article in the Washington Post that was written about this story. It's called, How, to Lo- How Does It Feel to Lose at the Olympics? And she describes her experience. And uh, here's what she says. Quote, she says, I was going to come out and crush. I thought I was just going to come out there and be fighting for a medal, fighting for gold. And that wasn't today. And this is going to be really hard. She said, her voice cracking, this is going to be really hard for the next year until the next championship can come around. I'm really sad. I'm really disappointed that I couldn't do better for my coach and my family. Then later on in the article, she says this, quote, I don't have the answers for what happened today. I wish I did. I wish I had a, oh, I have a hamstring injury or I was feeling bad. I don't have that, she said. My body shut down and I don't have an answer. There's nothing mental I could have done to will my body to do better than it did, which is really frustrating. Today is mystifying. That's a heartbreaking story, but what strikes me about that article as she's processing this bizarro moment is how just dumbfounded she is. The sense of, I don't have the answers. I can't explain this. It happened. I'm mist- totally mystified. And what she's doing is, is she's processing this tension of trying to make sense of life when it is totally thrown out of whack. When everything that you had planned for and expected and were hoping, like the script that you had written doesn't come about, and then you're left with the, 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 the tension and the feeling of how do you make sense of that, which is a universal experience. Every one of us have had that moment where something did not go according to plan. Life didn't go according to plan, and we're left to try to figure it out. Or maybe it's a relationship that you had hoped would work, and it didn't. Or uh, you were hoping to get into that uh, on that team or in that particular program or in that particular school and it, it, it didn't work out. Or um, you were hoping in some ways uh, for this kind of life and you got this kind of life. You were given a life-altering medical diagnosis. You experienced job loss. You're in a marriage that's way harder, way more challenging than you thought it was going to be. Your, 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 your parenting um, children that feels way more over your head than you thought. All of these things we're left with wrestling with how do we make sense of life when it doesn't go according to our plans. And I bring all that up because that's exactly what's going on with Paul in this passage, that he has experienced something that has not gone according to the plan that he had 
written out for his life. And so I think this passage is, is incredibly helpful for us, and I really want to look at it under two headings. Heading one is I want to talk about the mystery of God's plan. And then heading two is the secret of living into that mystery. So let's talk about the mystery of God's plan, and then we'll talk about the secret of how do you, li- how do you live in- into it? How do you embrace that? So first, let's talk about um, the mystery of God's plan. And I want to begin right in verse 12, right at the beginning, where Paul mentions this thing that has happened to him. You see that in verse 12 where he says, something has happened to him. And what's he talking about? What is it that happened to him? The thing he's talking about is the fact that he has recently been arrested and thrown into a Roman prison. That's what he makes explicit. He talks about that. He talks about his imprisonment in verse 13, in verse 14. And uh, in verse 17, and just to be clear, he wasn't incarcerated because he cheated on his taxes or did something like that. He's, he was imprisoned, he says at the end of verse 13, for Christ, meaning because he believed in Jesus and because he was going around and telling people that Jesus was the Christ. And then if you jump down in verse 22, verse 23, somewhere around there, he talks about how he is hard-pressed between these two possible outcomes, and he's, he's got this internal debate where he's wrestling with, which do I prefer here? Do I prefer to go on living so that I can have more ministry, more fruitful ministry with other people? Or do I prefer to be executed by the state so that I can go and be with Jesus? Which if you think about, man, that is a horrific mental debate to be having in the first place. But there he is. He's in prison for his faith, and he's really wrestling with, do I want to live or do I want to die? Now, if you step back, this is not what Paul wanted for his life. This is not what Paul planned for his life. You find out in another letter that Paul wrote that his great ambition, one of his great plans was to eventually go to Spain and plant churches because that's what he did. He was an entrepreneur. He was a go-getter. He would go into a city. He'd preach the gospel. He'd gather a group of believers. He'd plant a church, hang out there with them for a little bit, and then he'd go down the street and go to a different city and do the same thing all over again. He was ambitious. He was always going. He, was, um, he had the drive of Alexander Hamilton. It's a million things he hasn't done, and he just wanted to keep going and going. I mean, dude wrote like half the New Testament, and he's got these big plans. He's got these big dreams, and now it's all come to just this painful, screeching halt. Here's somebody who is devoted to the mission of God, planting churches, preaching the gospel, discipling people, and he gets taken out of the game. He gets benched. He gets uh, sidelined. But here's what's strange that Paul says. is rather than that being a hindrance to the gospel going out, it's actually a, a cause for the gospel to increase. Look at verse 12 again. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, he starts the next few verses showing kind of the ripple effect of how this has played out. Look, look at verse 13. He says, all of these unchurched, high-level Roman guards know that now I'm in chains because of Jesus. Meaning, if I were out on the streets free and I were just preaching about Jesus, these guys would never have given me the time of day. They would have rolled their eyes. They would have thought I was crazy. 
But now I'm in a Roman dungeon chained up and somebody has to sit there and guard me to make sure I don't escape. So I, it's like I get this free audience with this person that never would have listened to me before. And so now this, like this door has opened up for me to be able to have a conversation with somebody about things that we never would have been able to talk about before. And then he goes on, look at verse 14. He says, and most of the brothers, now he's talking about Christians, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Meaning these people saw Paul get arrested, and rather than that kind of freaking them out, which I think would be a normal reaction to say, oh, if people are arresting you for talking about Jesus, maybe we need to lay low. Maybe we need to go underground with this for a little bit. But that's not what their reaction was. They get emboldened by that. So now you have people who may have been afraid, may have been timid, are now out talking about Jesus in ways that are much more courageous than they were doing before. And then look at verse 15. He says, there's some people out there that are preaching about Jesus with really terrible motives. He says in verse 17 that they're preaching, trying to afflict me. It's a little confusing. We don't fully understand what the backstory is. Some people think that maybe preachers back then were thinking that Christianity was like a, was like a competition and, and uh, whoever won the most converts won the game or something. And now that Paul's been taken out of the game, they get an advantage. And so they're going out there and they're preaching Jesus even more so they can kind of put Paul in his place, which I, I don't know if that's kind of the backstory there. But either way, Paul says, you know, they have these really terrible motives for preaching about Jesus. But, but look what he says at the end of verse 18. But at the end of the day, Christ is proclaimed, and because of that, I rejoice. So you see the ripple effect of this crazy, you know, circumstance? There's, um, there's a Presbyterian church in Oxford, Mississippi, Oxford, Mississippi, I think I said that, um, called uh, College Hill. It's one of these old historic churches. It was built pre-Civil War era. 1844 is when it was built. Uh, the original pulpit uh, was in the sanctuary. The original pews. I mean, it's this one of these old, you know, it's because it's been there forever. It's got this long, rich history. William Faulkner was married there. The Union uh, Army encamped there. There's, it's got one of these old kind of country graveyards in the back where Union soldiers are buried. It's, you know, it's one of these like landmark historic kind of places. And you might know last month, August 13th, sanctuary burned to the ground. Everything inside completely destroyed. They, they don't know, as far as I know, what caused it. Just a devastating, painful, awful thing. And I've heard from some people that are a little closer to, the, um, to that community, a little closer to the situation, have said something like this, where they've said, you know, as, for as hard as this has been, for as painful and as, as devastating as this has been, I think this might actually be a good thing for our church. Because I think maybe we had gotten to a place where we were idolizing this sanctuary and we had gotten to get, we had, we had maybe started to get confused that our mission as a church was to preserve a building rather than to advance the gospel. And I bring that up because I think in a similar way, 
here you have Paul, and he has his script for his life. He has his hopes and his dreams, and they've all gone up in flames. And it seems awful. It seems devastating. And yet, God's using it in a way that nobody could have predicted in a million years. The gospel's still going out. In fact, it's, it's, it's even advancing. Now, here's where I have to be really careful because I don't want you to hear me saying something I'm not saying. I'm not saying every terrible thing that happens in your life and every time that your life gets totally blown upside you know, down and, and everything gets rewritten, that that's because God's dealing with some idol in your, in your heart. And I'm, not always, and I'm not even saying that you might not even, you, you may never even know what the, the good is that comes out of it. It's not obvious all the time. I mean, most of the time we're left like Emma Coburn where we're just sort of mystified. I don't know why this thing happened. But here's what I am saying. I am saying this, that God is not in the business. God does not exist to just grant us our hopes and our dreams. More often than not, he rewrites the script for our lives, for what we envision for our life to look like. And that's extremely painful. And that's extremely challenging, especially when your plans for your life are good plans. And your plans seem to sync up with what God would want in the world. I mean, if you think about Paul, his plans for the world were not <laughs> diabolical. He was not set on world conquest. He just wanted to plant churches. Matthew Henry is a uh, you know, famous Bible commentator, preacher, pastor from the 1600s, 1700s. And here's what he said once. He said, quote, God's providences often seem to contradict his purposes, even when they are serving them. Meaning, in other words, God sometimes allows things to happen in the world that seem to go against what God says he wants to happen in the world. And that in some mysterious way, he even uses that to bring about the thing he wants to have happen in the world. But that's the mystery. That's the mystery of it all. Johnny Erickson Tata said it in a much more succinct way. She said this, God sometimes uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God sometimes uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Look at Paul. He is experiencing injustice, pain, suffering, all things God hates. And yet God is using it to bring about this thing that God loves, which is having more and more people hear about his love and his, and his goodness through his son Jesus. So here's what this means for our lives that I want us to think about, is that this means that God's plans for our lives are not linear. They're not linear. When you and I think about, well, the best way to get from point A to point B is you go direct from point A to point B, and yet you see this all throughout the Bible, God does not take direct routes. He does not take linear routes from point A to point B. He goes roundabout, indirect, circuitous way to get from point A to point B. I mean, if you think about, just think about Paul. If you and I were to come up with a plan and we're say, hey, okay, what God wants is churches to be planted and more people to hear about Jesus. Let's take our best gospel communicator, Paul. Let's give him a platform. Let's give him international exposure. Let's give him a book deal. Let's get him on the traveling, speaking circuit. Let's get him out there and, you know, get him exposed to as many people as possible. And God says, it's not a great plan. Let me give you a better plan. Let's take him and throw him in a Roman dungeon. 
How does that make any sense? No one in a million years would say that's going to advance the gospel, and yet that's what God does. It's, it's not linear. It's not direct, which means this for you and me is that when life does not go according to our plans, when the script that we have written for our lives involves setbacks and failures and disappointments and pain and loss, what that means is there's more to the story. And we may not know what the rest of the story is. We may be mystified for the rest of our days, but that does not mean that there's not more to the story, that God is at work somehow even using setbacks, failures, disappointments, frustrations. When, when life does not go according to our plan, that he gathers it up and uses those painful things that he hates to bring about the things that he loves in his timing and in the mystery of his providence. Now, if you hear that and you think, okay, well, how in the world can I embrace that? How do I live, how do I live into that? You're just asking me to embrace the fact that I live in a world where God allows things to happen that he hates in order to bring about the things that he loves. How do I do that? Well, I want to look at this uh, second idea. Let's look at the secret of how you live into this mystery, of how you embrace this mystery. You know, I mentioned um, Johnny Erickson Tata a second ago, and uh, you might be familiar with her story. She's got an amazing story. When she was 17 years old, the year was 1967, she was swimming with some friends at, the, uh, at Chesapeake Bay, and uh, she was standing on the ledge to dive into the water, but she, she misestimated how shallow or how deep the water was, and so she dove in thinking it was deep, and it was actually shallow, and she, she broke her spine, fractured her spine. And since that day, she, I mean, she survived, but since that day, she's been in a wheelchair, quadriplegic, 55 years now that she's lived her life in a wheelchair. This is somebody whose life did not go according to plan for her. And uh, now in her later years, uh, she has cancer. She has breast cancer, and she is, is, has chronic pain as a result of it. There's an interview that she did back in 2020 that I, I, I extracted some of the interview and put it in your bulletin. You can read along with me if you want. It's on page one. Um, but here's what she said in this interview. She said this, quote, People ask me if God is good and if God has the power to do anything, then why hasn't God healed you? And to this I reply, following Jesus most often leads Christians not to miraculous divine interventions, but directly into the fellowship of suffering. In a way, I've been drawn closer to the Savior, even with this breast cancer. There are, the, there are things about his character that I wasn't seeing a year ago or even six months ago. And that tells me that I'm still growing and being transformed. And she goes on and says this. I sure hope that I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner. And then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior and I'll say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world you will have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. The weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened 
had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. And then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join the party. Now that's an amazing thing to say. The, the, the bruising of the blessing of, the wheel, of that wheelchair. How in the world do you get to a place where you have that kind of perspective? Where even something that is devastating, something that is such a, a loss that you could say is a blessing. It's a gift from his hands. The only way that you could have a perspective like that is if you see your entire life as orbiting around him, as if you see your, your whole existence as being gathered up into him. And in fact, that's what Paul says. That's what Paul says the secret to this actually is. Look at verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the secret. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you're familiar with uh, the show Ted Lasso, you might remember one of the teammates, Danny Rojas, whose famous mantra that he says all throughout the show is, football is life. Football is life. What does he mean by that? He means football is so meaningful to me. I live for it. It is where I draw the most, it's what I draw life from. It's what I think if I have it, I am fully alive. I have life to the full. Every single one of us has a mantra just like that in our hearts where we say blank is life. If I have that, I'm alive. I am tapping into life. I am living for that. So we, some of us say, successful career is life. Perfect body is life. A, um, having a sense of control and being on top of things and organized, that is life. Family is life. Or finally getting my dream house is life. Finding a spouse that is life. All of those things were amazing things to get and amazing things to have. The problem with building your life on those things is that means that now your life is 1,000% fragile. Because the reality is, is that you can and you eventually will lose all of those things. Death will take your health Death will take your family. Death will take your body. Death will take your reputation. Death will take your dream house. Death will take it all. Death will be loss. And yet here is Paul, and he is saying, no, Christ is life. For me to live is Christ, so much so that I can lose it all. I can lose my career. I can lose my reputation. I can lose my security. I can lose my comfort. I can use the plans I have for my life which he has. He's lost all of those things. And he says, I, if I still have Jesus, I still have life itself. So much so, if you even take my life, kill me, execute me, death then becomes gain. Because all death does is just drive me straight into the arms of the very one to whom is my life. Jesus is the one exception. Jesus is the one 
thing that if you build your life on him, you can lose everything. And death is no longer loss, but death is gain. That's how Paul, that's how Johnny Erickson Tata can go through life and experience devastating loss, experience having the script that they had written for their lives destroyed, and yet still be able to rejoice because they've said in their heart of hearts, Christ is life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, the, the danger with preaching a sermon like this is because that can make it sound easy. That can make it just sound like, well, if you just believe that, if you just remember this truth, just remember and believe this thing, then even you can be someone who experiences joy in the midst of loss in the midst of suffering, and it's not that easy. This is the lifelong challenge of finding your life in Jesus, and the way that you do that, the way that you find your life in Jesus is to look at how Jesus has lost his life for you. Because Jesus lost his plans for you and for me. When Jesus was in the garden praying and he's looking down the barrel of the cross, he says, God, if there's any other way to do this, where that doesn't involve me being crucified, let's do that plan, which makes sense to me. And it makes sense to you too. If, God, if there's a way that you can show up, just roll in as this mighty warrior, eliminate the bad guys, save your people, let's go with that plan. The only problem with that plan is if you eliminate the bad guys, as it were, you eliminate everybody. There's nobody left to save. And so Jesus submits his plans to the mystery of his father's plans. And he says, but not my will, your will be done. And you know what Jesus got to experience? Things that God hates. He experienced injustice, violence, insult, mockery, degradation. He experiences death. He loses it all. Why does he lose it all? So that you and I could experience life so that such a door would be opened up that death would not be the end of our story if we are in him. But when we are in him by faith, death actually becomes gain. The way that we and Johnny Erickson Tata and Paul can experience joy, even deep, defiant, hope-infused joy in the midst of real loss and real suffering is when you look at the cross. Because what the cross tells you is this. God is able to use the darkest, most tragic, horrific thing that's happened on the planet. And he's used it to bring about redemption and salvation and glory and beauty. And if God can do that with something that horrific, there is nothing that can enter into your life that God cannot use that God cannot gather up into his greater mysterious purpose and bring about the very thing he loves. That's our hope. That's the secret. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen. Let me pray. Father, this feels so foreign to my own experience. I'm sure it feels foreign to people here too, to think and to have a perspective like this where we would even see loss in our plans being ruined as somehow a blessing and a gift from your hand. 
Father, we don't possess that faith in and of ourselves. I pray that you would give us what we don't have. Give us, give us a perspective that we don't have. Give us a faith that we don't have. And give us a Jesus that is more beautiful and more believable, more mysterious, more majestic than maybe the one that we have. So that we might be able to say with Paul that for me, for us, to live is him and to die is gain. We pray all this in Jesus' name.